Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project, where purpose-driven leaders unite to change the game of life and business forever. Here are your hosts, Susan Hobson and Rob Kalvaroski. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, Minette Norman joins us back on the show to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and as always, a little bit more about psychological safety. It's a great episode. I really hope you enjoy it. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform, and we would really appreciate it if you dropped us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you want any leadership coaching, leadership programs, burnout programs, DNI programs, and some of the new assessments that we have both around personal behavior, teams, psychological safety, trust, and all those things, go to EliteHighPerformance.com and check that out. Or you can, as always, send me an email, Rob at Elite High Performance. Or you can get Susan, Susan at Elite High Performance. And also you can book either of us as a speaker by reaching out. Everyone, I really appreciate you listening. Happy Halloween. And here's the episode with Minette Norman. We are live. Welcome to the Leadership Launchpad Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. And as always, we have our in-house high-performance leadership coach, and former Princeton Tiger, Susan Hobson. Susan, how are you? I am fabulous. Thank you, buddy. It's Halloween weekend in my home. So we have got the pumpkin carved. The costume is prepped. And we are very excited that Halloween is actually on this year. So <laughs> <laughs> we're all crossing our fingers and our toes here in Toronto as parents. We were really, really hoping that that was going to be the case. So we are celebrating that this weekend. How about you? How you I doing? was going to, I was going to say you're, you're dressed up today, but, but, uh, <laughs> I'm saving really. my costume for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, like we always want to start with a quote and I have a great quote here. And for me, it's it's all about psychological safety. But this quote is actually from a world-renowned trauma and addictions expert, Dr. Gabor Mate. And so Ooh. he wrote a ton of books, but one of he's most known for is like, the body keeps the score. Yeah. And the right. quote is, safety is not the absence of threat. It's the presence of connection. And I think when we talk about psychological safety, I mean, he's talking about psychological safety, like he's not talking mm-hmm. about physical safety. Mm-hmm. But when we, like the groups that we run, and we're very aware about how we design those groups and we design them for connection within the people. And in even on the one-on-one side, like it's very much about connection to open the floor for people to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think that like obviously therapy is a very similar like one-on-one type of thing. And mm-hmm. we as leaders have to be very cognizant of how we're connecting with our people to open space. And so like a lot of what I've been doing lately around the trust and psych safety side, it's very much about creating the connection, 
building the trust and the relationships and the caring and all these other things. And then we get to psychological safety. So I just wanted to start there for our leaders. Susan, what do you think? Yeah, I think the quality of the connection, right, predicts the quality of the relationship. And that's what Leadership 2.0 is all about, right? It's relationship-centric leadership. So yeah, I love this whole concept of psychological safety because it obviously is the foundation for Leadership 2.0. I love it. And we have a guest who's coming back on the show, one of my favorite heart-centric leaders. But since her last appearance on the Leadership Launchpad Project, actually, um, a colleague of ours listened to the show that Minette was on, and now they're writing a book together. So if you ever have a reason to come on the show yeah. and be successful, now it, it, is. now it is. <laughs> now That's we got amazing. It. And Minette Norman's with us. Minette, maybe, maybe you can kick us off and just tell us a little bit about where you're going with the book. Yeah. And who is this with? Oh, well, it's, it's kind of a secret project right now. You know, you just don't want to put it out there before it's ready. But I will tell you the background of how this this book came to be or this. Actually, it's a it's almost like a little mini book or we're calling it a playbook. So it's not a full length book. Oh, but that. Rob and I were in a class together on psychological safety where we got this certification in the fearless organization training. And in that class was this fabulous woman from Germany, Dr. Carolyn Helbig. And she and I and Rob, Rob, are we in the same cohort or not? We weren't. Yes, no. we were. Yeah, we were, were we? Okay. So we were in a smaller group together and Carolyn and I kind of hit it off, but then she knew that Rob was having me on this podcast and she listened to the podcast and she texted me afterwards and said, you and I are so aligned. I can't even believe it. And I have a crazy idea. And so we had a Zoom call and I said, what's your crazy idea? And she said, you know how this psychological safety work is so important to us. And yet there are just not enough practical, actionable, you know, writings on the topic. I mean, even Amy Edmondson's work, it kind of stops with a little bit of a general flavor to it. So she said, what if we developed a really practical playbook on how to create more psychological safety? And it would be aimed at leaders who are really trying to build psychologically safe workplaces. So we're working on this right now. And we have we almost have our first draft done. So um, that's where we're at. We're not even sure how we're getting it out into the world. Like, <laughs> will it be printed? Is it just going to be a download? We don't know. But we want to get it into the hands of as many leaders as possible because I think there's such a need and there's so much appetite for it. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. Eh, Rob, we're seeing that is definitely more important than it's ever been, this whole concept of psychological safety, right? Spo spoiler alert, right? We just we just threw it in at the beginning of the podcast. I know. I don't know how Carolyn's <laughs> going to feel about that. I may need to ask you to edit it out. <laughs> so uh, I know good. I know one of the questions we wanted to ask off the top here um, that Rob and I have been discussing is that you know when people talk about diversity, it's often only external diversity that they reference, right? Sex, gender things like that. So I was hoping the expert herself could help us dig into the range of diversity when we're talking about that as a concept. I'm happy to. And I, I kind of feel like I need to preface that by saying, when you call me an expert, I, I am not 
the expert by any means. I have gotten really interested in this topic over the last five, six years. I've read everything I can possibly read. I would say there are people who are true experts who've been working on DEI issues for decades, and I am not one of them. I am a passionate follower and someone who has gotten into this space because I felt that not enough was being done in the corporate world where I came from. And so I decided to get myself educated. So I want to preface that, you know, I, I don't consider myself a deep expert. I am a very enthusiastic practitioner and I'm constantly learning. Uh, and that being said, you know, you did talk about like race and gender and these things that we see. And that has certainly come to the light a lot more in the U.S. in this last year or so, Um, you know, with the George Floyd murder and all of that race became something we were finally talking about again, because, you know, when I was growing up, race was a big topic. We're talking in the 1960s and not much progress happened between the 1960s and where we are today. And, And that's a huge thing. And so I think a lot of companies are focusing on race and gender. Uh, and I, that's so important, of course. And then there are all these hidden aspects of diversity that sometimes we talk about and sometimes we don't. And so mm-hmm. things like um, religion, socioeconomic status, education, mm. language, I mean, even what's your first language is. And then there's all the you know sexual identity, sexual orientation, mm-hmm. physical ability may or may not be visible. Mm-hmm. You know, that people are struggling with things that people may not even know about. And then there, there are things like learning style, cognitive diversity, neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was very interesting. I'm, I'm working with a client company and they just ran a DEI survey. And it was done by a really well-known DEI consultant who's run these surveys on, on large scales. And what they uncovered was so interesting. They had not been thinking about some of the more hidden aspects of diversity that we're talking about. And yet what came out in the survey was a pretty strong statement that people who had physical disabilities did not feel that they were really being seen and heard and accommodated. And that was a big surprise to this company because it just wasn't on their radar. And yet, if you you look at statistics, there's a very high percentage of people living with physical disabilities. And the other thing that came out was that people who considered themselves neurodiverse, and, you know, that can be whether it's autism or the Asperger's spectrum or even things like ADHD all of, or, or dyslexia. You know, there are many, there's a long list of things that would be considered aspects of neurodiversity. And a lot of this is hidden. Mm-hmm. And people, people often cover it because it's not safe to bring it up. They've been living with this their whole life. Mm-hmm. And yet that is just another aspect of who we are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, probably one of the big issues about diversity is that I use that word covering. Covering is when we try to fit in because we don't want to really expose necessarily this aspect of diversity or we want to fit in. We want to be seen as part of the dominant group as opposed to an outsider. And, you know, it's very deep. It's, 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 I'll tell you why I got interested in the topic. So I'm a white woman, right? I'm, I have all the privilege in the world. And yet I was in the tech space for 30 years And I spent most of those 30 years feeling somewhat like an outsider because we were, you know, women were in the minority. And as I rose into higher and higher positions of leadership, there were fewer and fewer women. And then I I had this sense of being other. 
Uh, so it was not just being a woman. It was the fact that I had a liberal arts background and then I was in engineering and I felt like I'm not, I don't quite fit in here. And so I, I experienced feeling other a lot of my career. And then I was working with people who, you know, had also aspects of diversity that they were dealing with. And I was mentoring a lot of people and I realized this is the work that I need to be doing. I do not need to be leading engineering. I need to be working on how do we make workplaces more open to all aspects of diversity and to be inclusive to everyone. So anyway, that's a long answer to what are all the ranges of diversity we can think about. It's something that we get wrong, right? Like one of a previous company I worked for, they had a dashboard that measured diversity in their executive team. And it was basically like female, male, and then like race. And you're like, maybe you're not including everything that you you should think about. And and even then, right, like you're basically excluding people from what you're measuring, which is even worse. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard because there are definitely aspects of diversity that people don't necessarily want to put out there, right? Like not everyone is going to share their sexual orientation or identity openly, and some are and some aren't. Um, so, so what people reveal about themselves really depends on, on their own circumstances and how open an environment, how safe an environment it is. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, the what you're talking about, Rob, the aspects that people are measuring, I do not want to negate the importance of that because I think it really is important that we do have numbers to make sure that, you know, organizations are tracking how are we doing on the most visible aspects of diversity while still considering the invisible aspects and also the inclusion. So, uh, you know, when you think of a company that is only one third women today, well, they should be working on trying to get to 50%, right? If that's the demographic of the of the overall population, why should companies have only a third women? And, and you know, of course, that for women that what happens is that they're often 50% or even more at the lower levels. But then as people progress through leadership, there are fewer and fewer women, there are fewer and fewer people of color. And those are the demographics we should absolutely keep measuring and not just measure, but but put targets in place to improve that. Uh, and so I think it's not a but, I think it's an and, and we also need to look beyond race and gender and, and age. And, you know, I didn't even talk about age, but age is a big issue uh, in diversity as well as we see, um, you know, the age groups in corporations and in organizations is, is big, right? When you think about like the aging boomer population still working, I'm one of them. And then, you know, people in their 20s coming into the workplace. And how do we not have ageism at both spectrums, you know, at the, at the mm-hmm. later? And, you know, all of this is part of what we need to think about when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. Mm-hmm. So, like, let's talk about that around inclusion. Like, how do we, I, and I know we talked about this from a psychological safety perspective, but you did mention that safety uh, for people around their environment is such a key perspective around inclusion. Like, how do we set up our workplaces for success in terms of making people feel like they belong? Yeah, and of course, that is such a huge question. And you know, to me, it is to me it is the question that I'm working on in my in my work in my consulting practice because I think it it is elusive, 
Uh, and it is so important because, you know, as you mentioned, companies and organizations are measuring the metric, you know, they're, they're tracking the metrics on um, how many women do we have, how many people of color, et cetera. And that's just the numbers. That's the demographics. And so you can hire, even if you're really being proactive, you're hiring more women, you're hiring just a more diverse population in all ways, and you bring them into your organization and you have not focused on inclusion, right? So you focused on the metrics of let's get a more diverse population. What will often happen is that if you haven't been focusing on inclusion first, you'll bring people in and they will immediately feel oof, I don't belong here. Like, I don't see a lot of people like me or I don't feel that I can actually share my, my unique perspective and my unique background. And so what I'm going to do is I am going to kind of stay silent or I'm going to conform to the dominant norms of this company. And so what you need to do at the same time is really work on creating a culture where everyone is valued and they are valued for their differences. And that could be the differences in their background, the differences in the way they think, uh, the differences in their perspectives. And, you know, so much of it, this is why I love that we've been doing work on psychological safety, because I actually think, and uh, certainly in Amy Edmondson's research, inclusion is one of the huge factors in psychological safety. And it's sort of a question of chicken and the egg. Like, do you have inclusion first? And that produces psychological safety. I, I think. So I'm Timothy not, Clark has it as one of his four pillars, right? He does. He does. And his is, so it's interesting because his is fairly low. I think the inclusion is maybe the first one or the second on his four pillars. Um, I think it is the absolute foundation for inclusion. I think that you do have to create this safe environment where different perspectives are not only tolerated, but welcomed and embraced. Mm -hmm. And that will naturally lead to more inclusion. But I think, you know, they, they definitely go hand in hand. And when you think about it, like if you think of inclusion as being not only accepted, but respected and valued and encouraged to fully participate in an organization, then you have to have this safe environment for people with really different ways of thinking, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different educational backgrounds to come together and be able to speak up and say, you know, I say thing, I see things completely differently. Mm-hmm. And that that's what we need to create in organizations so that we can not only attract more diverse talent, but that we can retain them and keep them motivated uh, in an in an organization that is really welcoming. And you know, the other thing about inclusion, so it's not only that you're accepted and and that you're respected, but that you have all the same opportunities as anyone else, and that it's entwined with equity, right? Um, but but you are included in opportunities. And when I think about, I think about even the, the company that I worked for for 20 years, which was, you know, a very progressive company, we had to really think differently about who gets opportunities for like a stretch assignment, right? Or a mentorship program or sponsorship. And if we, if we are not thinking inclusive, holistically, we tend to go to people who are the most visible, the most vocal, and those are the people who often come from the dominant culture. And, you know, in in tech, it's the white males often. So you have to be absolutely deliberate in saying, we want to identify 
future talent. And we need to look at it in a really different way because we keep going back to the same five people. And and I imagine like so much of this is based on people's autopilot, right? So as much as we want everybody to curate this collective mindset, right? In terms of an alignment around values for our teammates, you know, we respect them. We value their opinion and their perception, even, even though it might be different. So I'd imagine that one of the first steps to creating that inclusive culture or environment would be to really focus on first identifying um, any of those unconscious biases that people are holding, right? So where do we, where do we start if that is something that we realize needs to be tackled first, right? Like as a mindset coach, this is obviously what, what my approach is all about, right? Is like meeting people where they're at so that I can help to deconstruct any of the limitations in their belief systems in regards to the choices that they need to make. So where, do, where should we begin if we're trying to do that, if we're trying to identify any of those unconscious biases? Well, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's uh, unconscious bias training is a big thing today in the DEI mm-hmm. space. And often mm-hmm. organizations start their DEI efforts by running unconscious bias training for their employees. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, I don't know if you've read about this, it's, it's quite controversial and I'll, I'll explain why. So, so if anyone doesn't know what an unconscious bias is, it's also called implicit bias. Yeah. It's basically our unconscious favoritism mm-hmm. towards or prejudice against people in a particular ethnicity or gender or social group. Mm-hmm. And that bias actually influences our own actions and perceptions. Right. And we all have them. They are mm-hmm. innate. Uh, it's not a bad or a good thing. It's just that we have to know they're there. So if you're interested, this is, I don't know if either of you have done this. If you want to take some uh, implicit bias cl- uh, tests to see where are my biases, mm-hmm. Har- Harvard has this very interesting free program online. The URL is implicit dot harvard dot edu and they have a a handful of tests you can take you can take a gender test you can take a race test uh anyway and you can just measure where you are on the scale of where are your biases we all have them okay Mm -hmm. so so that's just a given uh i think that's good for us to reinforce for our audience right is like there's no shame in this there's no judgment in this we all have them we all have them. I think right. that's important, right? In terms of making it feel safe for people to even want to explore what their unconscious bias might be. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's yeah. part of it's part of how we as a species evolved, I believe. Exactly. That, you know, you had yeah. to like, be able to identify who was safe, who was friend not or foe. Yeah. Exactly. Friend or foe. And so it's it's hardwired into us. And yeah, so exactly. what the what the research has shown is that um, you know, and why there's a big controversy around just doing unconscious bias training is that uh, the training itself doesn't change anything except that you have this awareness, right? That mm-hmm. we have it. But what, what um, some very interesting research I want to cite that I read about and why it can backfire is that uh, sending the message that biases are unavoidable can lead to more discrimination if, mm-hmm. if that's all you do. So there was this review. If that's that all you do. If that's all you do. Yeah. So there's this review of like 700 companies that was done. Mm -hmm. And it showed that after they did unconscious bias training, uh, the likely, this was just a very specific study, but after doing unconscious bias training, the likelihood that black men and women would advance in the organizations decreased. Mm 
Mm. So there was actually a backlash afterwards. Mm. So, so what, you know, the research is showing now is that what you have to do in combination, it is important for us to know about the biases and you have to do more than, than become aware of it. And you have to actually learn to manage the bias and change behavior and track progress. And, you know, in organizations really put systems in place that are going to basically be a counter to our natural biases. So, so for example, if, if any of you have heard about this, the resume study that was done where there were identical resumes and the only thing that was changed was the name. One was a male name and one was a female name. And that resume was sent around to, uh, it was a sci- in a scientific environment. They were looking to hire a lab manager in a research facility. And across the board, this was, this was done nationwide. I don't think it was international. I think it was US centric, but across the board at every lab that looked at these two resumes, the women were scored lower. They were not as hireable. Uh, they were considered less experienced. And this is with an identical resume, right? And then they, and then the, you know, the hypothetical was if you hired this person, what would you pay them? And what would their trajectory be? And the women were going to come in with a lower salary and they were not going to have the same opportunities for advancement. And so that's just that bias of women are not as good at science as men. Mm-hmm. And that was ingrained in so many people's you know, unconscious. And so what you'd have to do is put systems in place so that we're going to take away gender when we're looking at resumes. You know, what what else are we going to do? We have to have very, very, you know, well thought out systems so that that bias that we have is not going to get in the way. And that we need to put those in place, not just for hiring, but for pay and promotion and opportunities and things like that. So I, I found one thing on, on uh, unconscious bias that I thought was really interesting, which is that we have, you all as behavioral coaches and, and leadership coaches know that our brains are malleable, mm-hmm. right? And that we can train our brains. And Rob and I were just talking about this <laughs> yesterday. yesterday. <laughs> it's such, such an interesting topic, but we are capable of influencing and changing our brains in a positive way. And so that work is what we need to do in addition to the unconscious bias training. And so like you have to be taught that we have it, there's no shame, but we need to do something to change how our natural reactions would be if we just were ruled by our unconscious bias. And so we have to really work on things like empathy and curiosity about others and learning about people who are different from us so that we can start to change our hardwiring. Mm-hmm. And it, it's yeah, funny you say that, Minette, right? Is like I was literally thinking about this last night was our exercise in our group yesterday in the little groups was like, what are you going to take away and what are you going to change going forward about your leadership? And I was thinking and I was like, I bet most of those people who are in the group, like we got a ton of great content and there's a lot of stuff you can do, but it's like how much of them are actually going to change because we're not changing the baseline, like those 95 to 97% of their thoughts and like those unconscious decisions that we make. And I think like that's where we go with our stuff is like we start with the the mindset piece and then add on all that other stuff. So then, but I mean, it's 
it's incredibly hard work. Like as someone who's done it and is still still doing it, it's incredibly hard work. And it takes like deep introspection and all this other stuff. And I think like, to be honest, like a lot of people, I think get scared off uh, just like how deep you have to go. Oh, I think you're right. I think you're right. And there's, you know, so much of the work is the work we need to do on ourselves before we can make big changes anywhere as leaders or whatever. And so it is uncomfortable. And I think one of the things that I have noticed in working with clients who want to do more around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging is they get really overwhelmed and they get scared. There's a lot of fear of doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And, and so people tend to hold back and just get paralyzed. Like I don't dare have this conversation uh, because I'm, I'm just walking on thin ice. I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to do something wrong. And, mm -hmm. and I think really the most important thing is just to be willing to be vulnerable out there and admit that this is going to be uncomfortable. The work of diversity, equity, inclusion is putting everyone out of their comfort zones. And we need to boldly move towards that and really just say, I'm going to explore it and I'm going to do one thing at a time and I'm going to try my best. And I will, I will apologize if I make a mistake and I will genuinely from my heart apologize. And I will listen with real curiosity and I will learn. And I think one of the things that leaders can do, I, I certainly felt like this was a big part of my education is I was mentoring a lot of women. I was met, mentoring people from a lot of different ethnic groups and just different backgrounds. And I, you know, the funny thing about mentoring is it's supposed to be the mentor is helping the mentee, but I learned so much. I, I think it's very much a 50-50 relationship. I learned so much from the people that I mentored. Uh, a lot of them were much, much younger than I was. They, they came from really different backgrounds. And I found that my mind was completely expanded by hearing the experiences they were living through. And so like one piece of advice I always give to leaders is Get some mentees, you know, offer to be an ally. You don't even have to officially be a mentor, but to be an ally and a mentor and see who comes to you. And it'll be people who see something in you that they want to, you know, learn from. And you will learn as much from them as they learn from you. And just be really curious about their experiences and what they have been living through day to day. And, you know, as I said, like, being a white woman in the workplace and then having, I mentored a very young black woman in my last job. She was, she was less than half my age. She was like 26 when I met her and to hear her day-to-day -day experience in the workplace, like, no, we can't imagine what someone else is living through, but we can listen and we can honor their experience and we can see how might we lend our privilege to help their workplace be better. And you know, that was, that was huge for me. You learn so much experientially when you just hold that space to hear somebody's perspective. That's why I have so much respect for these leaders who are initiating this type of locker room experience for their people to just resonate, right? And like people they work with every single day that they maybe never, ever, ever sat down with and, and got to listen to their, their stories, right? Or where they're coming from in that way. So I think you're right. It just, it just starts with that, that empathy, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it really does. It's like that, that curiosity just to want to know, I feel like is, is definitely where that all begins. And yes, it's hard work, Rob. Yes, it is. But I also think that's what I love about the locker room experiences that we're doing with these leadership teams, right? Is like, doesn't feel as hard when you're doing it shoulder to shoulder with your teammates. There's something about that collective experience, you know, I think we're, we're finding with our programs, right? That really starts to make that yeah, it's still challenging, but it definitely feels easier when you're going at that as a collective. Yeah, that makes a huge amount of sense. I think that what I hope that leaders can get comfortable with is, you know, yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. And yet, what is it all about? It's what you started with that quote, Rob, about, you know, the presence of connections. It's all about human connection. Mm -hmm. And if, I mean, I, it's very funny because Years ago, I, it was one of my first keynotes. I, I was delivering a keynote to a group of leaders and I called it transformational leadership, the power of human connection. And I don't think I even realized what I was getting myself into when I did that keynote yeah, because yeah. it's like, that's what the work, you know, that's all the work I'm doing now. It's all I want to do. But I think that connection with others and especially with others who are different from you just changes your life, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It changes your perspective. It mm -hmm. does increase your empathy. And, mm -hmm. you know, that whole idea, like there's the myth of it, that empathy is walking in someone else's shoes. And of course, we can never do that. Mm -hmm. But what we can do is like learn about what it's like and then care about what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes. And that's, I think, what, what real empathy is, is like, no, I can't experience what that is, but I am so curious to learn more. And I really care deeply about your experience. And that to me, I mean, it can be hard. Yes, Rob. And it also can be so fulfilling and so mm -hmm. really joy, joyful to start to learn and, and be part of other people's worlds that you might never have been a part of. And, you know, I, I think about this young woman that I mentored who was going through some really traumatic experiences at work and, and I couldn't solve them for her, even though, you know, I was in a VP position. I wanted to help her. I couldn't solve them for her. And yet just by her trusting me and our having these conversations, we established this really deep bond and we are friends to this day. We still oh, get together, that. but it was because of that human connection. And she knew that I cared about her. She knew I had her back mm -hmm. and vice versa. And like, that's priceless to me. Even just that motivates the change. Sorry, Rob. I was just going to say, even just that is enough to motivate the change to, you know, or the, at least the desire to want to do the work to change the biases, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. That. Sorry, buddy. What were you going to say? No, it, it's just, it's funny, right? Like I talk about this a lot, but it's like people need to be seen and heard. And even I was reading an article last night about like basically the therapeutic process and it was a study and it basically said the number one thing that makes a therapist effective is not the methodology they do. It's not what they, like whether it's CBT or EMDR or whatever methodology, it's how they create that connection and that presence. They call it therapeutic presence in the room. And cool. so it's basically their empathy and being able to see and hear your pain as the client. Mm -hmm. And I think like we as leaders... I mean, the first step is 
we us getting comfortable with ourselves like get because that's something susan that we end up a lot with right is like mm -hmm. we take these people into the spots where it's like they don't know who they are or they they find that they're running mindset strategies that that are not conducive to themselves feeling in their own power or being mm. themselves and that's the first step but then once you start to see that in yourself you can start to open space for those conversations to happen with others mm -hmm. and it's like that's what i've been able to do lately has been like get really in deep with people and it's not that you're necessarily trying it's just your it changes you and it changes okay. your presence. And I think they mm -hmm. feel that. Yeah, absolutely. They will feel that. They'll feel how much you care, right? Because I think when you can resonate with that on some level, right, that's what comes across subconsciously, right? It's like something that really is meaningful to you because you understand that experientially on some level. And that is part of what makes it safe too, right, Manette? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to be, you have to really walk the walk as a leader that uh, you are open, you are curious, and you have to show up with that openness and vulnerability. And then mm -hmm. it, you know, it's going to make it safe for mm -hmm. others. I think uh, what I've seen is that leaders can get really defensive when when we start to talk about DEI because it is it's so uncomfortable right and if we if we say like look you don't have any people of color in your leadership team or you only have one woman there's this natural defense like okay you know that 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 leader's going to get on on the defensive and that's again the natural how we defend ourselves as humans it's the fight or flight and so we want to get leaders out of that defensive stance and instead to an open stance and so you're, the work you're doing on getting really to know ourselves and our own behaviors and working on them is so important because that's the first piece of advice I always give to any leader is like, if you want to start working on DEI, you need to work on yourself and your own behaviors, your own reactions right. when you get it, when you get a challenging question. And that's also, it's the same with psychological safety. If you're a leader and you get challenged, how you react is going to completely set the tone for the organization. Like, are you really open to that challenging point of view, uh, to a new perspective that you'd never thought of? Or do you start to defend or do you shut down others? And if you do that, you know, you're going to have a huge impact on psychological safety and inclusion. And it will be this place where, oh, they talk about, you know, being open to DEI, but it's not safe to challenge anything. So just lay low. Mm -hmm. and, and that's fairly common. And so that's why the leaders need to do so much work on our own self-awareness, our own behavior, you know, really thinking and taking a pause before they respond when they're challenged. I feel like this is a good time to ask you about some of those real common mistakes that organizations or leaders make when they start to enter into this diversity and inclusion territory. You know, what are some of those big mistakes that you see and maybe can, you know, just put onto our leaders' radar if they're interested in engaging in this work? 
Yeah. So I'll go back to the, when we were talking about the unconscious bias training uh, and I'll just say, you know, one of the common mistakes right now is that organizations are rolling out unconscious bias training and leaving it at that. And as we saw, there can be a lot of backlash. So it's good to do it and follow up with more training Mm. on behavioral change. And so I think that's, you know, that's probably maybe number one. I think another one is that DEI and the work around it is still often seen as something we do in addition to our main mission. Our main mission is to sell these products, right? And we're going to be working on that. And when we have some bandwidth and when we have a little bit more time, we'll work on DEI. And so it's not integrated into the day-to-day. And it will always be seen as an afterthought. You know how, how many companies have put a DEI mission on their website? Like almost everyone. And many of them are doing nothing except having that statement on their website. And so I think the the way that companies need to look at it is this is a business priority like anything else. Mm -hmm. And as we work on our strategic objectives, DEI needs to be folded in there. As we look at how do we measure uh, the performance in our organization, DEI and equity, you know, I'm, I'm pulling out the equity piece there, that needs to be folded in. And so really to think about it systemically and systematically instead of a thing off to the side. And that's hard. And it's also, it's never ending work, you know, just as, just as like ongoing strategy and ongoing, you know, changing what the product roadmap is and making sure we're developing the right things and listening to customers, DEI needs to be in that day to day. And so that's, that's the work that I'm hoping more companies are going to start to pay attention to. I recently gave a inclusive leadership workshop to a company and I started out with a little mini survey and I said, you know, how many of you see uh, yourself as a DEI champion and it's part of your everyday job versus how many of you see it as like something I care about, but I have trouble prioritizing versus I don't think it's important. So the good news is no one said, I don't think it's important. <laughs> right. So I was, I, and, I, and, and I think they were being quite honest, honestly. Um, but most of them, almost all of them said, I think it's important, but I have trouble prioritizing it. And so that's where I think it's just, we need to rethink everything we're doing with that lens that it can't be an afterthought and it's a long game. And so we just Mm. have to keep investing in that. And then I think there's one other thing that I've seen uh, that is, can be a mistake that, that organizations make. You're probably familiar with the idea of employee resource groups or affinity groups. So you might have like, we had a black network, we had a Latinx network, we had a pride network where I was. And, you know, companies have these great employee resource groups, which are really wonderful because they're safe spaces for people. And they're also an opportunity for others to come in and learn from from these groups. But what companies often tend to do is like, okay, we'll let the ERGs take care of DEI. Right. And they just are delegating to the underrepresented people in the company to be the DEI experts Mm -hmm. and champions. And there's a very undue burden being put on those who are already underrepresented to educate everybody else, to put programs in place. And I'm, I think that we need to make sure that, yes, they should exist and there needs to be support at all levels, including the mm-hmm. C staff mm-hmm. for DEI. And, you know, many companies are hiring or have already hired a chief diversity officer, which is great. 
but they have to really put programs in place so that the heavy lifting is not being done by those who are really in the underrepresented groups. And that, you know, I think some companies are now starting to give financial bonuses to people who are leading uh, ERGs to recognize that this is work above and beyond their day job, and they're all volunteering to do this work. So I think that's something to be aware of is what burden are you putting on the people who are already carrying a heavy burden of, of being not the dominant culture or not the dominant group in your organization? I do feel like it has to be um, an external expert who comes in and facilitates that, or do you believe that the leaders can t- like tackle that themselves? Well, I think that leaders often need some help, you know, if this is not with their comfort zone, but I think that they can become the experts. Um, mm. and, and, you know, I mean, I'm just saying for me, like I'm not the, the expert, but I've learned a ton over many right. years because I cared about it. And I actually think like, yes, it's good to bring in experts because you want to make sure that you're getting this as right as you can. And I right. say kind of right in air quotes, because there is no right. Right. Like, you know, that's the problem. It's gray, all shades of gray and there is no absolute, but you want to make sure that you're educated, certainly. Um, but I do think that the more people can really internalize this work, the more a C staff can internalize what DEI really means, the better leaders they're going to be for their whole organization. And so, yeah, get the help you need, especially if you don't feel confident. Um, bring in people who are staff members. I mean, I do think it's important to have staff who are dedicated to DEI work. And I think they should be at the highest level in the company. Uh, uh, you know, often they're tucking DEI under the people organization, HR or people organization, and it gets buried a level. And, you know, I think if you really care about it, you put it right up there at the C level. Like this is for our whole company. This is really important. Well, certainly if you're trying to establish that this is a priority, right? Yep. I think yep. that's why it is important. Even if you start by getting at uh, like outside counsel or support or guidance in regards to some of the best practices, I do think it's important that the leader can eventually own and drive that. Yes. Because that model carries the most weight, right? In terms of what people believe your expectations are in the business. So, yeah, I think if you, and, and, and for sure, get the help and get the support. If you lack confidence in any of these areas that we talk about are major priorities and drivers of performance for your organization, you know, that obviously is what we focus on on this show. But, um, but yeah, I, I definitely think it helps for you to reinforce that, you know, we're all still learning about this. This is new space. It's ever evolving and developing. And therefore, we just have to have a growth mindset where this is concerned. No, it's so true. And, you know, even if you hire consultants. So, so one company that I was working with had hired a consultant who had been in the DEI space for many, many years. And so they would be considered the experts, right? Right. And unlike me, I think you could say these are true DEI experts. And yet the, the criticism that this company gave to them is like, it's very cookie cutter. So, Mm. you know, some consultants are coming in with their expertise, but it really does need to be customized to each organization. Uh, And so they were finding that uh, that was very cookie cutter for the US. So it was in the US context, but this company was a very global company that had employees all over the world. And if you really, like, for example, if you just focus on what does race mean in the US and you bring that into an organization that has teams in Asia and Europe and all over, 
it's not going to work. You need to contextualize what's, what does diversity inclusion mean to this environment, which is different from you know, a US-centric company. And so that's where I think there is no one-size-fits-all and there is no right. And we really do need to keep learning. And as you said, have this growth mindset of like, what does it mean? What does diversity mean in the context of a Chinese organization or an organization in India? Mm-hmm. And it's very different than what the context is in the US and Canada and things like that. Mm-hmm. So. That is definitely part of what we've learned with Manette here, right? Is like creating safe spaces. Make sure you're actually seeing your people. (laughs) So if you're bringing in some sort of a solution that doesn't really fit the context, it's not really going to land in a safe way, right? I learned something. So it was it was an eye-opening moment for me too. I was doing this workshop uh, a few weeks ago on inclusive leadership, and I had two VPs from India on the call. And we were talking about psychological safety and like trying to get your team to actually challenge you and ask the hard questions. And one of the VPs from India said, Manette, so let me let me explain my context. You know, we have a very hierarchical culture. And I knew that. And he said, uh, I'm still trying to get my staff members to stop calling me sir, right? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah, let me rethink the context here. He goes, so how could I possibly have them challenge me? And it's like we we had this really good conversation around what might be possible uh, in that context, because it's very different than it would be in a European or a US or Canadian context. And so, you know, I asked, I, I shared a story about when I was managing a team in China, and I asked someone to teach me something. And I realized I had, I had really made her uncomfortable. And she said to me, no, I, I don't teach my manager. And that was the culture, but she said, but I can help you. And I realized language there was really important. It was okay for me to ask for her help. And she was very comfortable helping me to learn something. But the word teaching made her uncomfortable. And so I think this is where, you know, like I, I felt like, okay, the face plant of that, that was bad, but I learned a ton and I learned about the culture I was operating in. And so we had this conversation with this VP from India and he goes, yeah, I think maybe I said, you'll probably have to find your own words. Uh, that are not the words uh, that I'm sharing with you today about challenging the status quo or asking yeah. the hard questions. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe the word is I need some help, uh, you know, whatever it is. And so I think that's the other thing that we need to look at is the context in which we're operating and what feels right. And you have to get to know the people in your org and know where they're coming from. And it absolutely also has changed just because of the remoteness now that we've moved and I was reading statistics the other day about, and this is only talking about like basically women, men and black and white and Asian. Right. But it's like, there's, there's different levels of inclusion based on the remote aspect between these different, obviously it's the visible, but diversity elements. And so it's another thing to consider is, is like, yes, maybe the strategy that you had worked two years ago, um, but the world has since drastically changed. And so it's something that we need to consider is like, how are we building these spaces in a remote context, which is also different than in an in-person context. But that being said, we have to wrap up. So Manette, that's for part three. That's right. <laughs> when Manette comes back, we'll, we'll, uh, to promote the new book. 
Yes, um, exactly. We'll, we'll have her. Um, we'll have her talk about that. Now, Minette, if anyone out there is listening, they want to find more about you and what you're up to. Where can they find you? Uh, they can go to my website and contact me. It's just minettenorman.com. And they can find me on LinkedIn as well. Perfect. And would and love we'll, to talk to people. And, you know, this is obviously what I care about, where my energy is. So anyone should feel free to reach out. Uh, yeah. And we'll drop Minette's website and her LinkedIn bio in the podcast notes so you can find her there. For us, obviously, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to Leadership Launchpad Project on your favorite podcast platform. And if you can, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That would be incredible for us. And if you have a question about mindset, leadership, management, or anything else, you can drop that in the review and we'll answer it on the show. And for all new stuff that we're up to, all our leadership services and coaching services, you can go to EliteHighPerformance.com and find it all there. Susan, is there anything you want to leave us with today? I love it. Just managing those expectations with Manette's help today, right? We're not here to get it right, folks. We're here to learn how to make it better. And as long as we can stay engaged, right, in that, that type of mindset, I, I'm very, very, very positive that we are definitely going to up our, our impact game, right? We're going to be able to play a bigger impact game, even though the world is, is looking different and we're challenged and we're outside of our comfort zone. That's what this show is all about, learning how to make it better. So that definitely was well reinforced today. Thank you, Minette, for coming back to see us again. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to both of you. Yeah, it was it was awesome. And, and it's true, right? And I, I want to just echo that is it all starts from a space of curiosity and empathy, right? And That's it. we can start with that connection and open the floor for our people to tell us their experience. Mm-hmm. And it's not that we can necessarily fix it or quote unquote, get it right. Because in this humanness, and we always talk about the messiness of leadership, there is no right, but it's about being open and improving. And that's where we are. And we can improve as the world changes. And that's the best that we can do. So let's get out and do it. Love it. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And we'll see you all next week. Bye, everyone.